Support for WERU comes from Village Soup, the Republican Journal, providing the communities of Waldo, Knox, and Hancock counties with news, information, ideas, events, goods, and services on newsstands Thursdays and on the web at waldo.villagesoup.com. And this is Maine Currents, independent local news, views, and culture. I'm your host, Amy Brown. If you missed Democracy Now! host Amy Goodman when she was in Bangor last month speaking at a fundraiser for WERU, you're in luck today. This weekend next on Maine Currents, we'll be bringing you her talk, divided into two parts because it lasted just over two hours, and it covered a wide range of issues. After the second half airs next week, we'll archive the full speech on our website, weru.org. This was recorded in Bangor, Maine on May 14th. My name is Matt Murphy. I'm the general manager of WERU, and it is my distinct privilege and honor to welcome you all here to the Unitarian Universalist Society of Bangor, uh, allowing us to be here tonight. This is WERU Community Radio, as you can all guess. We're here to celebrate 20 years of Democracy Now! Uh, Democracy Now! has... Democracy Now! has been on the air for 20 years and on WERU for 20 years. We were the first station in the state to pick up Democracy Now! So. so I want to say thanks to uh, uh, David Goodman and Amy Goodman for driving up from Portland today. Uh, they started the day in, I think, Washington, D.C., and uh, drove up from Portland, uh, spoke in Portland, and, and uh, made a mad dash up here. So thanks to both of them for being here. Um, I want to thank a few other people. Thanks to uh, Susan, Connie, Bill, John, Amy, Charlie, and Pat, Willie, and Karen, and Joel for all their work. They're all WERU people who made, uh, made today happen. So uh, let's hear it for all the folks working on it. And I'd like to thank our sponsors for the event, uh, Artisan Builders of Monroe, Old Professor Bookshop in Belfast, Spencer uh, Properties in Belfast, and Bookstacks Bookstore in Bucksport. So without any further ado, I'd like to introduce uh, WERU's News and Public Affairs Manager, Amy Brown. Thanks, Matt, and thanks, everyone. And before I get started, I want to recognize a few people in the audience who do news and public affairs locally here at WERU, and I think I caught everyone as they came in, but if I miss anyone, um, please stand up. We have Andre Bella here, who is the host of, one of the hosts of Healthy Options. Andre, please thank Andre for all of her great public affairs programming on WERU. Uh, John Greenman is in the audience. He's a regular contributor to our public affairs programs as well as the person who answers the phone, engineers a lot of the shows. These people are going to kill me later, by the way. They didn't know I was going to do this. And probably the first one in line will be Carolyn Coe, who is a regular contributor to many of our programs. Uh, re reporting back quite a bit from her travels to the Middle East. Uh, Larry Danzinger is here. He is the host of Outside the Box. And if I missed anyone, I apologize, but these are some of the team of people who bring you great local public affairs at WERU. When Meredith DeFrancesco and I started volunteering at WERU, it was a year or two before 9-11, and we were traveling around uh, the country to different cities where there were massive anti-corporate globalization protests were taking place. And within a few years, massive anti-war protests. There were tens of thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands of people in the streets. And most people never heard about it because the corporate media was having an, essentially a blackout. It was not being reported. People were amazed to come back home and see that this huge protest they'd taken part in was not being reported on. And so we heeded the call, as many people did at the time, to be the media. And WERU gave us a way to do that. WERU supported that, gave us the equipment, gave us the training gave us a place to put the stuff on the air. So we're forever grateful for that. And Democracy Now! and Amy Goodman were the example of how to do it. 
They were nationally, internationally known at the time and still speaking truth to power as they've always done. But there was a real distinction between corporate media and independent media at the time. If the media, the corporate uh, mainstream media showed up at these protests at all, they would stand on the sidewalk, they would talk to the police. Sometimes they had these real sexy flak jackets on like they were doing something tough so they'd have their picture taken in front of the riot. And, but they never really needed them because they never got off the sidewalk and went into the crowd to find out what was going on. But and, and being indie media at the time really was kind of a risk because not only did the police not honor your media credentials, they targeted you because of them if you were indie media. They raided indie media centers. Uh, you got chased down, arrested, beaten, shot at with uh, other protesters as media and even targeted. If you had a microphone or a camera in your hand, you were more of a target. Although she was nationally and internationally known already at the time, had staff, probably could have sent an intern out into the streets to do it for her. We saw Amy Goodman all over the place. She'd turn up in city after city, right there in the crowds, not standing on the sidewalk, just writing down whatever the police said and going home and reporting on that. She got out in the streets with the rest of us and she was always there, always making sure she knew what the story really was. Uh, one of the times I recall was in New York in I think 2004, the Republican National Convention. There was a uh, word got out that some of the delegates were going to be having dinner in this restaurant in uh, Central Park. And so a few people went to greet them as they left. And it quickly escalated into kind of a, um, a pretty big deal at the time, quite a protest. And it looked like it was going to get really out of hand, but it was, not known ahead of time that it was going to be happening. There weren't that many people there. And then poof, out of nowhere, there was Amy Goodman and the Democracy Now! crew. It's like some kind of reporter ninja just showing up. And I know that's her city, but her timing was impeccable. So it was pretty impressive, you know, late at night to just have her show up like that. And to me, that really speaks to her journalistic integrity. And it's something that whenever I hear her on the air, I know that she's not just sitting in an anchor chair reading stuff that people have given her to read, that she's actually out in the streets and she's talking, she's not only speaking truth to power, but she's speaking to the people who don't have the power in hearing what they have to say. And to me, that's the sign of a real journalist. And I really appreciate that. And so obviously to all of you, and she has won a lot of awards for it. Uh, Democracy Now! is now broadcast on more than 1,400 stations around the world. And some of the awards that she has won include the Stone Medal for Journalistic Independence Lifetime Achievements Award, the Right Livelihood Award, which is known as the Alternative Nobel Prize, and the Park Center for Independent Media's Izzy Award. She's also co-authored six New York Times bestsellers, New York Times bestsellers, including the one she's going to be talking about tonight, which is Democracy Now!, 20 years covering the movements, changing America. And for more than 20 years, she has been speaking truth to power. And I wanted to end by saying, join me in welcoming Amy Goodman. But first, join me in welcoming her brother, David Goodman, who has a few more words to say. David Goodman is a co-author of this book. And so join me in welcoming David Goodman. Thank you. It's great to be here in Bangor and just to be here in Maine. And as you're going to hear, you may or may not know this, but Amy has deep roots in Maine. You may be surprised at her history here. Um, it goes even beyond WERU, even beyond before she was a radio journalist. So I thought that, um, you know, as uh, in addition to being a uh, co-author with Amy and uh, Dennis Moynihan, another, uh, our colleague who has been an essential part of the trio that brought this book to bear. Of course, we have another job, which is that we're on this 100-city tour right now, celebrating 20 years of democracy now, celebrating the release of this book, and um, it takes both Dennis and I Dennis has been on for much of it. I'm, I'm on now, then Dennis comes back next week. You kind of get the picture here. You notice there's one person who never stops. <laughs> yes, it takes two of us to keep up with one of Amy. 
Um, and that also speaks to what we know of democracy now. It takes an, there's an entire media world out there, you know, a billion dollar industry with high tech studios and high def TV and all this. And here's this little democracy now, the little train that could, starting in a firehouse in New York City. And I remember the very early days, they would tape newspapers to the walls so they could see the headlines. Amy would be with headphones on. It began as a radio show. And when it's finally switched to TV, Amy was just, they just brought a camera into that studio. Amy was on with headphones. It was very um, rustic, as we say here in northern New England. Um, so, yes, it's come a long way. But I thought that you might, uh, I might share, how did this person whose voice and image comes to you over the airwaves and uh, in whatever way that you uh, connect with democracy now, um, get to be the person and reporter and journalist that she did? And um, as her brother, I, I can tell you a few secrets. So... I think the roots of it were at our kitchen table. And our kitchen table was a place where we were always debating. My parents were both very engaged in our community and the world. Um, both of uh, my dad was a founder of Physicians for Social Responsibility on Long Island, a chapter there. And um, the image we had of what one does in the world is in addition to being engaged, you asked a lot of questions. So back in December 1995, Amy had, Amy's career in journalism began was never a calm affair. Um, her motto since the earliest days uh, of what she did even before Democracy Now! was that the role of journalists is to go to where the silence is. And for those of you who watched or listened to Democracy Now! just yesterday, you got a remarkable example of that, where there was a segment, the last segment, and then it carried on into a post-show that you can see online. Uh, Amy interviewed uh, a man named Kinetic Justice, who is in solitary confinement right now. And how he got a phone in there to speak, but he was speaking from inside uh, the solitary. There is no more silent place on earth than people in prison. And as many of you know, right now, the United States has two million of its citizens behind bars. 25% of the world's prisoners are in the United States, where we comprise just 5% of the world's population. Can you think of any media outlet on your 500-channel cable spectrum, if you have cable, that would give you news like that, that would bring you those voices? I know that I can't. That's what we turn to Democracy Now! for. So. The kitchen table that I speak of. So in 1991, this mission to go to where the silence is brought Amy to East Timor, a small island nation a few hundred miles north of Australia that since the mid-1970s has been occupied by the Indonesian military, in which they essentially drew an iron curtain across this poor land and began a 20th century genocide. The whole thing took place out of sight, out of reach of the international media. And in fact, journalists who were there when the Indonesians invaded uh, were executed, a group of Australian journalists. And this genocide was carried out where a third of the population was killed uh, with US weapons and US support. So in 1991, Amy went there with her colleague, Alan Nairn, a wonderful journalist uh, who you still hear periodically reporting on Democracy Now! Uh, he's a regular contributor. And uh, Amy and Alan went there and saw and chronicled in the countryside the, the fear and the terror of these people as they tried to survive 
under this onslaught. And then back in the Capitol, um, a massacre occurred that Amy and Alan were caught in the crossfire of. The soldiers turned their weapons on them. Um, Alan threw himself on top of Amy to protect her and had uh, and they swung their US made M16 rifles at his head until they uh, fractured his skull. These were the early days of Amy's journalism career. So in 1995, and the story that they came back to tell, uh, we tell it in the book, Democracy Now!, um, had much to do with the unraveling, the beginning of the end of the occupation, shining a light, bringing this story to the world, to a forsaken place where no one was, it seemed to them, no one even cared. But people did care and would care if they knew about it. So in 1995, Amy is in a safe house in Haiti. It's December. She's there covering an election. Now, a safe house for an election, uh, a little unusual, but it's a place where at that time you took your life in your hands to express any sort of dissent. Amy was there covering the election and, and was there with opposition leaders, and um, she gets a call. And the call was asking her to see if she would host a new election show on Pacifica Radio. This was for the 1996 election. It was the re-election campaign of President Bill Clinton. He was running against Senator Bob Dole and a billionaire who refashioned himself a politician who thought he had all the answers for the world. Uh, no, this guy's name was Ross Perot. So, um, well, when Amy came home to that kitchen table again, uh, she told us, and, you know, we did what we always do. We debated this. I very helpfully offered my opinion. Democracy Now! I said, that's what you're going to call the show? Democracy Now! What is this, like a pamphlet that you're handing out or the show? Nobody's going to listen to a show called Democracy Now! And, you know, Amy pushed back, well, what would you call it? And I said, you know, just, just kind of go undercover here, you know? Good times with Amy or something, or <laughs> the election hour. Just don't, you know, nobody's going to listen to that. So as she has done then and so often, she defied conventional wisdom, this time of her family, which was not unusual for us. My parents, on the other hand, were absolutely thrilled by this news. An election show? Finally, their daughter was going to have a boring desk job. Nothing could have made them happier after all that had transpired to that point. You know, they kind of had this image of Walter Cronkite. She would be the voice of God, and she would hold forth with who's hot, who's not, who's up, who's down, and the week after the election was over, she'd, you know, do something else that was boring and behind a desk. No more midnight calls from embassies on the other side of the world telling her that, you know, their daughter, they weren't sure where their daughter was, there was a problem. Um, well, as you know from listening and watching Democracy Now!, that's not really how it unfolded. This, the mission to go to where the silence is continued, and the uh, uh, con confrontations with authorities also continued. And, uh, the late 19, in 1999, Amy returned to East Timor, where she had been officially banned, attempted twice to get into the country, was arrested and detained. Uh, a few years later, uh, was arrested while covering a plowshares demonstration where they were banging on nuclear warheads with uh, the Berrigans, Father Daniel and Philip Berrigan, and uh, others from the plowshares movement was uh, arrested while covering a protest at the White House with Terry Tempest Williams, Alice Walker, uh, a number of other women authors. Amy was just covering them, but the police were not convinced of that, and she ended up in the back of the police wagon as well. And then in 2008, covering the Dem Republican convention in Minneapolis, Amy and two of her producers were arrested while covering protests out in the street. So 
No, it, the desk job has yet to materialize. Um, but the reason for all this and the reason for all this excitement is that the approach that Amy has taken, a democracy taken, now has taken, is not to focus on the CEOs and the presidents. It's to go to the real movers and shakers, to you, to turn the cameras and the microphones around to the people in the communities, to the people in the movements that are really driving the change. You know, we often say that if you saw it in the New York Times or on the evening news today, it, you saw it on Democracy Now! a year ago. And that's because Democracy Now! is the place that we go to find out and to realize that you're not crazy and you're not alone. The things that you see in your communities the outrages that you feel against the injustices around us are in fact a broad patchwork. And the movements that connect people from Black Lives Matter to the movement against mass incarceration, the movement to stop climate change, the LGBTQ movement, all of these vast movements, democracy now is kind of like a beating heart that is the connective tissue that where everybody is talking to everybody. The kitchen table we grew up with is now a big table at Democracy Now!, where all the voices are brought in to share and connect and to know that we are all in this together. That's what happens when you go to where the silence is with a microphone, with a camera, and bring the voices out. You bring the voices to that table and realize there is hope when we come together and when we know what each other are doing and when we're dignified by having our stories told. And the place where they're told is so often democracy now. So here is to 20 years of the most courageous, most compassionate, and most essential journalist in America, my sister Amy. And his sister Amy, of course, is Amy Goodman. This is record, was recorded last month at the UU Church in Bangor at a fundraiser for WERU. It was one of her uh, stops along the book tour for her latest book, which is called Democracy Now! 20 Years Covering the Movements Changing America. You're listening to Main Currents on WERU. I sort of trusted what David was saying until that last part. Um, but actually, uh, I want to say thank you so much to David um, and Mike, our colleague, Dennis Moynihan, without whom this book would never have been written, not to mention the other five books. David is a great journalist and writer. Um, who lives in Vermont, in Waterbury, Vermont. And uh, in addition to writing for Mother Jones and the Washington Post, and his work has appeared in the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, Outside Magazine, and the Boston Globe, he does a radio show uh, in Waterbury uh, that broadcasts throughout Vermont called the Vermont Conversation. Um, David is my inspiration for journalism, even though he is my younger brother. Um, just uh, to get him back for telling family secrets, uh, when he was seven years old, uh, he started Dave's Press. And there were signs all over our house, arrows pointing to the second floor to his bedroom that said Dave's Press. And in there, you'd see him laboring over this old Xerox machine where you burn the imprint of one page into another, and he would be putting all his weight on it to produce this multi-page uh, newspaper called Dave's Press. It was kind of a glorified family calendar, but also much more. Um, he would say things like, you know, on this date, April 3rd, uh, mom spanked Amy. And then... <laughs> 
And then my mother would say, you don't get to air our dirty laundry in your newspaper. And David would cry, freedom of the press. <laughs> and because he was seven, he would actually cry. Um, but it wasn't so much the family calendar part that was so interesting. It was the letters to the editor and the editorial page. Oh my God. And in the letters to the editor, um, our family would debate the issues of the day. So my grandfather would write in, Dear Duvital, I am so proud of you. I love this newspaper that you have published. Um, and David would write back, Dear Grandpa, um, thank you so much for being the first subscriber to this newspaper. <laughs> Um, but your views on war are stupid. And <clears throat> they would debate the Vietnam War. Then my great uncle would weigh in and say, Dear David, I'm horrified that your grandfather would attack you in public, uh, on the public pages of, um, of Dave's press. I thought I was the treasurer, uh, but we were speaking on the West Coast where another of our brothers live, and he objected, saying he was the treasurer. I think David charged like one or two cents a year. I'm not sure, but this is what kept it going from the larger good people family. Um, and then he started getting involved with extracurricular activities, so the mag newspaper went from one a month to one every two months, but he would double the pages. and. Uh, it really was, and he would write editorials on the, on the Vietnam War and other issues, and we still have copies of them today. So it was Dave who was my, um, who really was my inspiration. Also, you know, our parents, our dad with Physicians for Social Responsibility, he had a very famous poster that appeared in all the Long Island Railroad stations um, of him in a white coat. Um, if any of you come from Long Island, you might remember this. He looks exactly like Peter Sellers, my father. And it said, it was a white doctor's coat, and it had a stethoscope, and it said, um, and in the stethoscope was a nuclear mushroom, and it said, your doctor is worried. Um, my mom taught women's history and literature at local community colleges, and um, she was really beloved in these classes. It was like continuing ed for police and firefighters, truck drivers. If they could get a few more credits, they would make a little more money. So they would go through the offerings. They'd see women's literature. Oh, great, chiclet. I can do this really easily, and I'll get more money, like chick literature, that kind of thing. So um, uh, they would. she would introduce them to... Doris Lessing and Virginia Woolf and Toni Morrison. And these guys would sit there and they were just blown away. They would actually read the books. They would say, so that's why, this is right at the time of women's consciousness raising in the 70s, that's why my wife is so angry or that's why my daughter won't come home. And soon they would bring their wives and their daughters. By the end of the semester, her classes would be packed to the rafters with families. So then she became a social worker and she started doing family therapy. But um, it was that flexibility and the two of their, both of their peace activism that really inspired us. And my father was asked to be the head of a task force in our community to integrate the schools. And this is when I was in about fifth grade and I would go with him to the cafeterias and auditoriums of our elementary schools and junior high schools in our community. Thousands screaming parents. He had death threats hurled against him as well as other members of the task force, but they were determined to integrate our community. We lived in a racially diverse community, but there were the real railroad tracks that separated us. And they decided if, well, what's called busing now, if we had, instead of neighborhood schools, the first graders in one, the second graders in another. And we watched as he judiciously led our community to a better way of living. Uh, my older brother, also involved with our high school newspaper, as we would all be, the Maroon Echo, very seminal in our lives, um, would eavesdrop on his conversations in his study without my dad knowing it because the door was closed. And when my father would walk out, Stephen, our brother, would say, oh, my God, I got a scoop. I've got to write this down. And my father would say, what are you talking about? He said, well, I just heard everything you said on the phone, Steve would say. He said, that was completely off the record. And Steve would say, well, you didn't say that at the beginning of the conversation. <laughs> and my father would say, I did not know you had your ear to the door. 
And then my father would chase Steve down the stairs and he'd be screaming, freedom of the press, freedom of the press. You know, that's the freedom of the press issue was always very important to all of us. And so in high school, we would take on our principal, write an editorial, get a policy changed at the high school. So beyond that, when we went on to be professional journalists, it was just holding those in power at a little higher level, like the president. Um, uh, and that's what the press is supposed to be, holding those in power accountable at whatever level. You know, there's a reason why our profession journalism is the only one explicitly protected by the US Constitution, because we're supposed to be the check and balance on power. So Democracy Now! began, as David said, 1996, the only daily election show in public broadcasting on nine community radio stations. And now we've done, <clears throat> being here tonight, we have completed the round of all the stations that ran us 20 years ago, like Chaos in Olympia, Washington. We were just there less than a week ago, K-A-O-S, doing a fundraiser. And KKFI in Kansas City. We were there two weeks ago. Um, and right here, W-E-R-U. And of course, the five Pacifica stations. Um, let me talk about KKFI for one minute, the one in Kansas City. So our colleague, Dennis Moynihan, years ago, um, was one of those who got involved with the Leonard Peltier campaign. Leonard Peltier, the Native American leader who was imprisoned um, for the killing of two FBI agents in 1975 on the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota, a crime he said he did not commit. But he was imprisoned. He's been imprisoned ever since. And he appealed for clemency under President Clinton and is again appealing under President Obama. For years, he was imprisoned at Leavenworth. And Dennis in the office in Lawrence, Kansas, Leonard would call in every day at 8 o'clock, right after Democracy Now! aired in the morning there. <clears throat> and he would describe to Dennis how he and... <clears throat> as he called them, the brothers, um, would be outside in the so-called recreation yard, um, huddled around a tiny transmitter, a tiny transistor radio, which the warden had sized it down to the smallest you could imagine, all these big guys huddled to listen. And he said that's what would fuel the day for them. And he would talk with Dennis about everything he heard, and he said they would talk all through the day about the issues of the day. And then we were doing a fundraiser, oh, a few days ago in Atlanta, Georgia. This is quite a whirlwind tour, this 100-city tour. And I thought of what I got for Dennis for his birthday, because it was last week, a map. We crisscrossed the country about five. He's the organizer of this tour, the tour guide extraordinaire, except we have crisscrossed the country too many times. Um, but in Atlanta, we did a fundraiser for WRFG, Radio Free Georgia. And they just got a contribution of $325, which is a really nice contribution. But it's from 65 people, 65 prisoners in the maximum security prison that hear WRFG, who pooled their resources. And finally, right before we left on this tour, um, we got an email from a prison administrator in England. Well, about a year ago, he called, and he asked if he could run Democracy Now! in the closed-circuit prison television. Um, and we said, of course. You know, we pioneered this way of sending broadcast-quality video through the Internet. So we started on nine stations, and now, 20 years later, we're on 1,400 public television and radio stations around the world. We are broadcast many times a day in a number of cities in Sweden. In Japan, we're called the Other America. We're in South Africa. We're out throughout Europe. In Latin America, we have headlines that are translated into Spanish every day, the same ones you get in English, and in Spanish language media in the United States and across Canada on community and college stations and increasingly PBS stations all over the country. I'll be speaking at the main PBS conference Monday night in Chicago. Um, and we're on both public television stations in San Francisco, both in Los Angeles and Washington, D.C. We're on Howard University's public television station because we bring in a young, diverse, extremely committed audience who will contribute to these stations that are concerned about their financial future. 
Um, so this call that we got, this email that we got right before the tour, the prison administrator said they have run Democracy Now! for a year on prison television in England. And they, have, they attribute a 50% increase in enrollment in classes by the prisoners to Democracy Now!, people's hunger for information. They want to go beyond Democracy Now! and really learn about the issues that we're talking about. And this is just so inspiring back at us um, that all over there's this hunger for independent voices. So <clears throat> that's KKFI. That was Leonard Peltier. Um, that's what's happening in the prison system in England. Um, but I want to talk about the history of where I come from, Pacifica Radio, you know, which was founded in 1949 in Berkeley, California, the Pacifica Radio Network, founded by a war resistor named Lou Hill. He came out of the detention camps and he said, there's got to be a media outlet that's not run by corporations that profit from war, but run by journalists and artists. And so Pacifica was born. The first Pacifica station, KPFA in Berkeley, not run by corporations, as George Gerbner would say, founder of the cultural environment movement. He was the late dean of the Annenberg School of Communications at the University of Pennsylvania. Not run by corporations that have nothing to tell and everything to sell that are raising our children today. Um, KPFK was the second station. It went on the air in 1959. And <clears throat> 1960, my station, WBAI, went on the air. In the first two years that it was broadcasting, um, WBAI aired a debate between Malcolm X and the great writer James Baldwin on the effectiveness of nonviolent civil disobedience, the effectiveness of the lunch counter sit-ins um, in the South. And then there was KPFT in Houston, went on the air in 1970, and WPFW in Washington, 77. That's the Fab Five, the five Pacifica stations. And I want to turn to the KPFT Houston station, you know, the station founded in the Petro Metro of Houston. So it goes on the air, and within a few weeks, it's the only radio station in the country whose transmitter was blown up. It was blown up by the Ku Klux Klan. They strapped dynamite to the base of the transmitter and blew it to smithereens. Right in the middle of Arlo Guthrie singing Alice's Restaurant. And I thought that was a good song, but... Um, so it takes a few weeks, but they rebuild, and the transmitter um, starts working again, and uh, they go back on the air. And then the clan blows it up again. But this time with 15 times the dynamite at the base of the transmitter. Now it will take months. And then in January of 1971, they finally did go back on the air, and PBS came, you know, this was a national event, and the phoenix was rising from the ashes, and Arlo Guthrie came back to Houston to finish Alice's Restaurant live on the air. Now, I don't remember if it was the Grand Dragon or the Exalted Cyclops, because I often confuse their titles, but he said it was his proudest act. I think that's because he understood how dangerous Pacifica is, how dangerous independent media is. Dangerous because it allows people to speak for themselves. And when you hear someone speaking from their own experience, whether it's a Palestinian child or an Israeli grandmother, whether it's an uncle in Iraq or an aunt in Afghanistan, whether it's a kid from the South Bronx or the South Valley of Albuquerque. We just spoke at RFK High School in Albuquerque, where the vast majority of the students in that high school are undocumented immigrants. Um, when you hear someone speaking from their own experience, it challenges the caricatures and the stereotypes that fuel the hate groups. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Maine Currents on WERU, and this is Democracy Now! host Amy Goodman, of course, speaking at the UU Church in Bangor last month at a fundraiser for WERU and one of the stops on her book tour for her latest book, Democracy Now!, 20 years covering the movements changing America. 
I think the media is the place for us to hear people telling their own stories. I mean, you may not agree with them. How often do we even agree with our family members? Um, you may sound like, say, it sounds like my aunt, my baby, my bubba, you know. You begin to understand. And that understanding is the beginning of peace. I think the media can be the greatest force for peace on earth. Instead, all too often, it's wielded as a weapon of war, which is why we have to take it back. Now, I just told you a story of history. The Ku Klux Klan, 46 years ago. I cannot believe we are talking about the Ku Klux Klan today in 2016 in this presidential race. How is it possible that the presumptive nominee of one of the two major parties, you know, Donald Trump, the presumptive Republican nominee, presidential nominee, when asked on CNN whether he would disavow the support of an avowed white supremacist, right, of a Klan leader, David Duke, I can't remember if he was the exalted Cyclops or the Grand Dragon, but David Duke, whether he would disavow the support of David Duke and the Ku Klux Klan, Donald Trump waffled. He said he'd have to look more into this. He'd have to consider this. When was the last time you heard Donald Trump say he had to consider anything before he spoke? But this, he had to weigh more deeply. By the way, David's handing out the daily digest sign-up sheets, which is our way of keeping in touch with you, sending you our headlines every day and news alerts. If you'd like to sign up, that would be fantastic. And if you want to do it not by paper, but by your cell phone, you can simply text the word democracy now to the number 66866, and you'll get a request for your email. You put in your email, and then we send you an email, and you approve it. And it's as simple as that. So again, you can just text the word democracy now to the number 66866, and you'll get the request for your email, and you'll give it. And also, if you tweet anything, if you Instagram any pictures or any thoughts, um, if you want to use the hashtag covering the movements, because that's what we do. But so Donald Trump in 2016, um, disavowing uh, whether he would disavow the Ku Klux Klan. He said he would have to consider this more, um, dig more deeply into whether to disavow their support. What is it that he had to consider? I mean, he didn't, he wanted to find out which Klan chapter it was. He didn't want to generalize to all the Klan chapters in the United States. And this is frightening. You couple this with the violence at his rallies. Now, I don't think any presidential candidate is actually responsible for everything that happens at a rally, especially if there are thousands and thousands of people there. But you set the tone, and you say what is allowable. If someone defies that, that is not your fault. So if you say you do not condone violence, I think Bernie Sanders has said that at his massive rallies. But Donald Trump not only doesn't say that, but he says he will pay the legal fees of his supporters. For example, the one who sucker punched a Black Lives activist, Black Lives Matter activist, and then afterwards, the Trump supporter said next time he would kill him? I mean, Donald Trump is ripping open the underbelly of hate in America, and it is very frightening. And this issue, you couple that with, you know, wanting to look more deeply into which Klan chapter was supporting him. Um, it's also why we need independent media, especially for young people. Yes, I think everyone's heard of the Klan, but we have to talk about its actual history and what the Klan did. I mean, I come from New York. We were the closest national broadcast to Ground Zero, September 11, 2001. It was that week, by the way, just coincidentally, we started on television as emergency broadcasting, and that's when the show just took off. 
But September 11th, what a horrific moment. 3,000 people incinerated in an instant. We'll actually never know how many people died on that day because those who go uncounted in life go uncounted in death. And they were the undocumented workers or immigrants who were perhaps in the area. But 3,000 people. Yet it was not the first time that terror came to U.S. soil. Ask any African-American about slavery. Ask any Native American about what's happened in this country. And the Klan fits into this. The Klan was a homegrown American terror organization. It terrorized whole populations, particularly going after African-Americans. Thousands of African-Americans were killed, lynched, mutilated, um, terrorized. And we have to know this history so it isn't repeated. And I have a few other comments about the election. Um, in the midst of this 100-city tour, one of the times we were at San Francisco Airport, um, we were racing there, and I got a call from AJ+. Plus. That's Al Jazeera+. Plus. You know, Al Jazeera America just recently folded, which is very sad. I hope Al Jazeera overall doesn't follow suit. But AJ+, Plus is very successful. It's the digital Al Jazeera. And they asked if I could do an interview with them. Uh, on the, and I said, um, we're racing to the airport. They said, well, we're right on the way to the airport. And I said, well, I, I mean, I'll miss my plane. I have like five minutes. They said, fine, five minutes would be fine. I said, really? Yes. Okay, so we pulled up. I was on the journey with Dennis then, and he hadn't even gotten out of the car or um, rearranged the luggage to make sure we could get on this next flight before I came out again. So it was really fast. And I sat down, and they asked me about the elections. So um, I came out, we went on, and then last week, a week later, they posted three minutes. I haven't checked in the last like five days, but when I last checked, it was over 11.7 million views. 11.7, like, so it's well over 12 million now, it must be. And it shows that, you know, every once in a while in life, it's a good thing to take a detour that you hadn't planned on. But I don't think I said anything that was that different from what you all probably think. It just doesn't hit the corporate media radar. For one thing, I said the same thing I had said on CNN in the last few months. They've invited me on several times. And at first, I was going to just critique CNN. But I said, you know, I can't tell the difference between you guys, MSNBC, and Fox, because Donald Trump sounds the same on all three networks. You know, you have this lower third, this breaking news, breaking news, and he's just talking. And unless there's some static interference, it's the same in all three. And you don't have to take my word for it. In 2015, um, well, the Tyndall Report looked at all the 2015 coverage. Donald Trump got 23 times the coverage of Bernie Sanders. I think it was ABC World News Tonight gave Donald Trump 81 minutes. Bernie Sanders got 20 seconds. I'd really like to know what Bernie Sanders did that was so newsworthy for that 20 seconds. Um, and then let's look at one primary night. It was a five-primary five night. This was March 15th. I think they called it Super Tuesday 3. This was Florida, Ohio, Missouri, North Carolina, and Illinois. Um, so Marco, Senator Marco Rubio um, lost Florida, and it was his home state, so he pulled out and he gave his concession speech. Remember Senator Rubio? Yeah. And then Governor Kasich won his first primary. That was his home state of Ohio, so he gave his victory speech. Remember Governor Kasich? Um, and they played the full speech. Uh, Ted Cruz spoke. They played that speech. Hillary Clinton at that point in the evening had won North Carolina, Florida, and Ohio, and she was smart to speak then because the next two states were hotly contested. It was Sanders, Clinton, Sanders, Clinton through the night. Uh, Missouri and Illinois, which was particularly interesting because that's her home state. But it's good to speak while you're ahead. And so she was speaking then. And then they waited for Donald Trump. And they waited for Donald Trump. And they showed in the upper right-hand corner this square of an empty podium in one of his Florida mansions, right? And they just keep showing it. And, you know, all the pundits on all these networks, there's, you know, they're saying the same thing. They're filling the dead air. And these pundits, you know, 
who know so little about so much explaining the world to us and getting it so wrong. And, but, you know, they're just filling the time because it's wall-to-wall -wall coverage, as it should be. It was a big night. And finally, he came to the podium, and he gave his half-hour speech, and they played that. And that pretty much did it, right? I mean, you had Trump, you had Clinton, Kasich, and Cruz, and you had Rubio. There's no one really else left, was there? <laughs> Who? Um, I saw some T-shirts here. I'm not sure. Um, Bernie who? Bernie Sanders, right? Okay, so, and this was a hot night because Missouri and Illinois, they were still up for grabs. On any of these networks, they didn't even speculate where he was. There's something worse than negative coverage, and that is the vanishing. You know, I don't care if you're for Bernie Sanders or against Bernie Sanders, but it's about fair coverage. So, that was it. I mean, what happened to him? Had he fallen asleep? Now, that would have pleased Arianna Huffington, who, you know, wrote this new book on the sleep revolution. She highly encourages it. And I was just on Bill Maher with her a few weeks ago as part of this tour with Susan Sarandon and Arianna Huffington. And I challenged Arianna, like, to a duel or a debate. I wanted to talk about the merits of sleeplessness and how much more you can get accomplished. <laughs> She wasn't having anything of it, so I told, I promised her I would take a long nap in June. Um, but anyway, where was Bernie Sanders? Had he taken the night off? Well, part of this journey, we went through Arizona, and we were in Flagstaff, Tucson, and Phoenix, so I can actually for sure say this, because I met many people in Phoenix who attended a Bernie Sanders rally that night of March 15th. Thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people. You could look it up online. I'm sure the video is there of Bernie Sanders, one of his big, massive rallies. It actually wasn't one of his largest. So he was speaking. Why didn't any of the networks play it? So that night, we decided, okay, we're going to play an excerpt of Bernie Sanders' speech in the morning on Democracy Now! The live broadcast is at 8 a.m. And... Um, I mean, who would have thunk it? Who would have thought it's a revolutionary act to simply play an excerpt of a speech of a major party candidate on a major primary night or the morning after? But that is what it's become. And another thing, I'm calling for an electoral season without polls. That's right, an electoral season without polls. What do you get when you tune into these networks from morning until night. She's moving up on the left, on the left, on the left. She's at 21%, she's at 22%, she's at 23%. He's moving back, he's at 18%, now it's 17%. Now he's moving up on the right, and another one is moving up the middle. I mean, it's mesmerizing, you know, as a horse race is. But how does this serve you by the end of the day in making your decision? And how does it serve democracy? In fact, what does it matter what your barber thinks, what your librarian, what your coworker, what your family thinks about who they're going to vote for? What you need to do is figure out what are these candidates and business people's records? How do they compare to their promises? It's what each of us needs to do in making a decision about who we're going to vote for. And that's what the media needs to provide for us. Now, you might say, no, no, no. I actually am interested in these polls. I, I actually am too. But these polls actually happen, the fact-based polls, almost every week. They are the actual primaries and caucuses. You don't have to speculate. At the end of the day, you find out who voted and who didn't. You can find out the racial breakdown, the gender breakdown, the economic breakdown, all the breakdowns that are interesting, and they're all based in reality. Instead, they bring you these polls that are so often wrong, and after a primary, they spend the next period of time talking about how they got it so wrong. This coverage is obscene because these are critical times. There are so many crucial issues. And another thing, you know, I was just in Washington this morning. I went on C-SPAN Washington Journal. And there, several weeks ago, 1,200 people in the streets of Washington were arrested as part of Democracy Spring and Democracy Awakening, protesting the corrupting influence of money in politics. You know, following in the footsteps of Granny D. They not only were talking about money in politics, as they were being dragged away, they're saying, where's CNN? Where's MSNBC? They weren't covering this. 
Where's the papers? Why aren't they covering this? 1,200 people arrested. I mean, if there were 1,200 Cubans arrested in central Havana, you would have all the network news anchors from the United States flying straight down. You know that now they can fly directly, right? Um, and they would be talking about this repressive regime making all these arrests, and you'd learn all about it. 1,200 people in our nation's capital are arrested, and we hardly get the coverage of what these people were doing there, unless, of course, you tune into Democracy Now! Um, or the other programs on WERU, and I loved Amy's introduction, and it's so great to know there is a newsroom there at WERU for the community, by the community, from the community. Um, so the idea of an electoral season without polls, and this issue of money in politics. These candidates are raising obscene amounts of money. I mean, Hillary Clinton, uh, we were in Laurel Canyon, California, so was she. She was at a fundraiser behind closed doors of uh, the house of George and Amal Clooney. You might have heard about that. So the going rate for a seat at the head table was $350,000. Well, I mean, that was for a couple, right? Um, uh, and Clooney was asked about this on, on network shows. And even he said it was obscene. And he threw the party. Now, so this is how it works. You have uh, Bernie Sanders. He raises these issues of money and politics all the time. But in March, he raised something like $44 million to Hillary Clinton's March uh, take, which was something like $29 million. Now, it's interesting, because he raises them transparently on the campaign trail. He just says, give, please give. And people give $3, and $9, and $27. That's the average, I think. So they never max out, because these are little amounts of money. You can keep on giving and giving and giving. Hillary Clinton, he's got like well over $6 million. He's breaking every record, and also with these massive rallies. Hillary Clinton has fewer donors, but they give a lot more. And she has to do it behind closed doors. That's where the, oh, Black Lives Matter activists uh, protests like in Charleston, South Carolina. Recently, one held up a sign. Uh, she was from North Carolina. She came to Charleston, and it said, I, I am not a super predator. And she was referring to comments that Hillary Clinton made in 1996 uh, when she was first lady supporting uh, President Clinton's um, so-called anti-crime bill in 1994 that even he says led to just mass incarceration. And she said a few years later, she talked about some black youth being super predators. So this is something that the Black Lives Matter activists have continually talked about and confronted her on the campaign trail about. Because mass incarceration is a terrible issue in this country. I mean, the idea, as David pointed out, that we have 5% of the population, 25% of the world's prisoners. Um, so this money that these candidates are raising. And it's not even just Clinton and Sanders. It's all the candidates. Where does it go? Where does the overwhelming amount of the money go that they raise? To the networks to pay for campaign advertising. So do you really think these corporate networks are going to raise this question in any serious way? They're lining their pockets. Right, the very networks that are supposed to be raising this issue. And I'm not saying they never do a special on money and politics. I'm sure there has been one. I you know, fell asleep once for like uh, 10 minutes, so I missed one of them, but um, even for an hour. But that's not the issue. It's the drumbeat coverage that matters. It's the daily, regular raising of these issues, sort of like they cover Trump. The reason everyone knows who he is is they cover him constantly. And it's with that same model that the issue of money and politics should be raised, because that is undermining democracy. Again, that was Democracy Now! host speaking in Bangor, Maine on May 14th, that fundraiser for WERU and a uh, promotional tour for her latest book, Democracy Now!, 20 Years Covering the Movements Changing America. Join us next week for the second half of her talk here on Maine Currents, independent local news, views, and culture, every Wednesday at 4 o'clock. And it will be archived, the entire talk, 
at uh, on Friday at WERU.org. I'm your host, Amy Brown. Bill Solomon provided production assistance for today's program. You can reach us at news at WERU.org. Stay tuned for Democracy Now! coming up next, then jazz straight ahead with Larry Stahlberg here on Community Radio WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org. Support for WERU.